Hello, Kachimbonas. Welcome to episode 46 of season five of Radio Kachimbona. Radio Kachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This episode was a very special one for me. I was able to interview Gloria of Nalguna Positivity Pride, who I've followed for many years, pretty much since the start of my podcasting journey back when I used to do Cinebronas, for those of you who are the OG fans. We discussed why Gloria has taken a harm reduction approach to eating disorder recovery, how traditional treatment options have failed very many people, and why healing isn't a requirement for Gloria's recovery approach. I've discussed harm reduction before in the context of drug use and abolition, and I'm excited to expand the conversation to something that is I know an issue for many femmes. So I hope that you all take something away from this podcast. If you want to support the podcast, the number one way to do so is to become a patron. I have recently invested in new mics. I am creating a studio space to do video podcasts and am soundproofing the studio to make sound quality even better. All of this requires money and ultimately this is a self-funded project. So if you want to support the podcast, make it sustainable and make it something that I can keep putting out, then please go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona. For as little as $3 a month, you can be a part of making this podcast happen. A completely free way to support the podcast is by following at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, continuing the conversations there. If there's anything that sparked your mind that you want to continue discussing, go there. And also just share the podcast with a friend who you think will enjoy it. That always helps us gain new listeners. Uh, I think that that's it. And I hope that y'all enjoy this episode. Bye, Kachimbonas. Hello, Kachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have a very special guest, someone that I followed on Instagram for years now and have admired from afar, but for some reason and somehow have not yet had on the podcast. So today I have Gloria of Nanguana Positivity Pride. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I think we can just get into it. Um, what made you embrace a harm reductionist approach to eating disorders and could you just kind of quickly define what that is? I have talked about harm reduction before on the podcast, but in case whoever's tuning in is listening for the first time, can you break down what that is for people? Yeah, typically when we are dealing with harmful behaviors, we quickly run to solutions. 
And I Mm -hmm. think that's just how the human brain works. And when you care for somebody, you want the best for them. So you think, okay, let's just get you to recovery or abstinence ASAP. However, human suffering, trauma, social economic circumstances all impact a person's ability to stop self-harm. And when we look at harm reduction, it is a non-traditional approach. Mm -hmm. It's about radically holding compassion for people who Mm -hmm. are in it, who are in positions of transition. And so looking at my own experience, having had an eating disorder for most of my life, the complexities that come with having an eating disorder make it very difficult to treat Mm -hmm. and therefore for it to go away. Especially the research shows the longer you've had an eating disorder, it could be more challenging to stop those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't receive treatment within, let's say the first three years, your chances of a full rehabilitation decreases. And so on top of the other layer of treatment is not accessible, about one out of nine people only go to treatment. And what's to say that treatment is going to be effective. No treatment model is 100% effective. So then there's that other layer. So there's so many things in place that make it difficult for people to be ready and open and willing to stop such behaviors. And so, yeah, I think what I hear you saying is that right now the standard treatment model is you're in treatment and healed or you're not. And that doesn't, you know, that binary doesn't provide space for the real work of recovery, which isn't linear. Like you said, especially with issues of access to healthcare, to treatment, especially within that critical three-year period, there's mounting obstacles to being completely healed or completely treated. And a harm reductionist approach is one that is like you said, approaching people with compassion and kind of with a more realistic understanding of what healing looks like, because it provides more room for people whose journey is not linear. Yeah. And I think what my view of harm reduction might be a little bit different because healing is not a requirement. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this wellness culture that we're in right now, it's toxic, even in the sense of everybody needs to be healing. Like it's a chore or it's some another thing on my plate. And it's also an Instagram aesthetic. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just it's consumer based and I, I'm highly critical even of that. Like what is healing? And for me, my stance is me personally, mm-hmm. that I don't owe that to anybody, mm-hmm. especially if. If somebody is in survival mode, healing might not be the priority. And I understand that. You get me? Mm-hmm. So for me, harm reduction, the way I see it, it's great if a person has goals of healing, of maybe even reaching abstinence. Like, yes, amazing. There's room for that, obviously, as well. 
Mm-hmm. But for me, harm reduction is even if the person does not want to stop and doesn't even want to reduce the behaviors, there's still things a person can do to increase safety, mm-hmm. to increase literacy, maybe substance use, maybe sex work, maybe gambling. You know, there's different types of self-harm behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that I see it. Like to this day, and this is maybe like really out there, but my goal is not to completely stop my eating disorder behaviors. i rather be honest and say where I'm at. And oddly enough, and I was just having this conversation with somebody, having that stance on I'm going to do harm reduction and not have the goal of abstinence has brought me the most amount of peace and growth without it even being my goal. Again, that's not to say that that's everybody, but in my case, Mm -hmm. my life has completely changed for the better. My health, Mm. my mental health, everything because of harm reduction. I feel like it just allows less pressure. There's too much pressure for healing, too much pressure for... I'm in the other side. I'm on the green green side of things. And I'm like, listen, we're still under settler colonialism. There is still no other side. <laughs> I mean, not to be a downer, but oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. Like people still need to survive in, in this system that we live in. And harm reduction, kind of, it's accepting that reality and helping people navigate and make healthier choices and sort of in that way that is how the ultimate outcome is or can be for people increased better health outcomes because they are i guess able to like you said not feel that pressure of having a perfect healing journey and i think even letting go of that helps you settle into yourself and i think that in itself is valuable or that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that harm reduction has allowed me to show up in the table with all of me, Mm -hmm. the good, the bad, the messy, and the realization that sometimes the best thing you can do when you're seeing somebody else going through it is what I call sacred witnessing. Because again, we're so, we want to fix things, but we sometimes have to really sit with the uncomfortable feelings that comes when somebody is experiencing harm. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel there's just for lack of a better word, but there's even medicine in that of sitting with all the emotions in the room at once and being like, this is hard. I don't know what to tell you, but I'm, I'm here and I see you for what you're going through. And I think if we all did that more, we would be in a better place. A lot of us would versus setting an expectation. More people could like show up genuinely as themselves in more spaces. Right. And in social media, that's so harmful in its own when we give this portrayal of I'm in this other side. And I think some people do get there. Yes, hopefully. But do we all get there? I don't know about that because I'm still hella depressed, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) 
So it's just like I could connect more to people within their mess than saying, here's three steps to ending whatever it is that I had a problem with. And and maybe people do get to that place. But there was a point in my life, me doing this eating disorder work, that seeing recovery-based content would just depress me Mm -hmm. because I was not there. And it was another standard that I had to fulfill that I had no urgency or desire for. Right. So what that did is it told me I'm wrong. Yeah. And it just further alienates people. Right. Yeah. And I was going to say that it, I can see how that can feel like erasure when, especially, you know, for social media, there's so much performance. And so, you know, seeing recovery content exclusively can make you feel or misunderstand that you're the only person who's relapsing or who's not on that journey. And I think that's why like, I really appreciate how you do show up even in the social media space, because I do think you're practicing radical honesty and it is providing a space for people who are in messy places, as you say. Let's stay messy. <laughs> it's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're funny. <laughs> oh my God. What a mess, but it's, it's true. One of the things I talk about eating disorders is that it is a modern world disorder. Right. And eating disorders evolve out of disconnection. If there's even a disconnect in the content that's supposed to be about healing, then we're doing it all wrong. We're doing it wrong. And so I will say that when I first started Nalgona, I was coming from this stance of, I'm recovered. Mm. I'm never going to relapse. I'm on the other side. (laughs) And then life smacked me in the face and told me, oh, yeah. (laughs) And this this relapse experience Mm -hmm. was so humbling. Is that what helped you adopt harm reduction as an approach? Sort of experiencing your own journey in that way? For sure. For sure. I mean, I, I, before I started Argona Positivity Pride, I, I was a community organizer, did a lot of feminist, anarchist related organizing back in my, in mi juventud, like my mom says. Um, (laughs) So I, I was exposed to harm reduction through this little radical community in Riverside where I was raised. Okay. That's amazing. Shout right? out Riverside. Yes, please give the IE some love. <laughs> Nobody, oh God, you should be my friend Chris Rodello. Y'all would like really have a time. Oh my God. Both messy enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> Can we make that into the aesthetic? Yeah, I think y'all are doing it. That's why I think you should meet. But okay, it's neither here nor there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I love that. He's also from the Inland Empire. So he's at Riverside now. As a professor. So, yeah. The IE breeds a different type of person. I know. Let me tell you. And I say that because there's room for dreaming in the IE. Why? It's emptier. It's not congested like these other areas where it's so much noise and everything. Right. In the IE, I don't know. There's There's quiet too. Yes. There's mountains. 
there's fields like it just there's room for dreaming and i it only takes somebody who has lived in the ie to understand that because it, yeah the ie is a thing of its own shout out ie <laughs> yes Going back to where was I at? Um, Crime reduction. I, you were talking about your anarchist politics, and yeah, yeah, that's what I was exposed to harm reduction. And so when I first started Nalgona, I did start with a little bit of harm reduction work, but then I came to the point in my early twenties where I said, "I want recovery. I want to stop this. It's ruining my life." Mm-hmm. And I did stop for a while. And then identified as being recovered and then eventually fell down headfirst and had to kind of relearn this process of I'm deep within it and I don't want to stop. And I have so much shame because I don't want to stop. But everybody around me wants me to stop. And my livelihood depends on me being the poster child of healing and eating disorder recovery. Cuando no lo soy. Mm. That's not who I am. And then people seeing my body is changing because I'm suffering. Yeah. And then having to come forward and say, like, I'm deep within it. I'm not a role model. I'm a downer right now. Like, I am not an influencer. I'm a downer. And I went through it, but I had to go through it. And I still am. Yeah. I am in a better place. But there was no other way. But for me to experience what I had to experience to get to understand other people and be less judgmental. Mm. That's what harm reduction has taught me. You cannot be that judgmental. If you're a harm reductionist at heart, you cannot be judging people like that. Right. Yeah. I think that our current healthcare system, especially when it comes to mental health stuff and like the intersection of that with physical health, the healthcare system is more about surveilling. And actually, as you're saying, judging, you know, even having like a quasi-policing vibe, I think that's also why harm reduction is useful in this space because something that you talk about a lot is how treatment centers have ultimately failed to lessen the crisis of or you know, ameliorate the harm of eating disorders. And I think that a big part of that is the Western medical system's approach to eating disorders. Again, having this conversation earlier and, and talking about my very limited experience with treatment centers, the whole process of nutritional rehabilitation, which in their eyes, that's recovery. It's very numerical based very Western, linear, patriarchal. My experience with that was I felt violence in my body while going through this recovery process. And I'm not saying that when you go through recovery, it's not going to be painful. But my goodness, it made me run away further from whatever this recovery thing is. I will do as much harm reduction I have to do in order not to come back to this place. And what I was telling um, the person who I was speaking to right before our call was, there's no way that that was supposed to be my healing. Western culture brought forward these types of disorders 
Western pathways will not be the solution. And it was just so rigid and it was pure whiteness. That's what it felt like. And every cell in my body was protesting. It shut me down. And I wrote this. I remember writing this when I was going through it. I felt, you know, when you lose your password to an account, like a very important account and you get locked out, like that's it. You you tried so many times. You have to come back another time. You get locked out. That's how it felt with my body. I was locked out of my body. So there's no way in hell that that experience was recovery. Far, far, far from it. And with that, I will say the disclaimer that this is not everyone's experience. Yeah, I know there's people who have had very affirming and life-changing experiences. And I don't want to discredit that. I'm just speaking from my own experience. And I will never tell somebody not to go to treatment. Yeah. I will never say that. I will say if there's enough curiosity within you, let's do it. And let's have a plan for you to also process treatment outside of treatment. Right. Yeah. I I appreciate you saying that because this isn't to dissuade someone from trying to get that help if that's what they need. But I think the harm reduction framework is important, especially living in, you know, the country that we live in with the health insurance situation that we have, which is just terrible. The reality is that most people aren't going to be able to get that treatment. And so what do we do if you can't get it to a treatment center? Like, do you just not even try to begin your healing journey? Do you just continue on? Like, what are the resources for you? as someone in that situation. Right. Yeah. And this is what's so messed up about this process, right? This is what I call eating disorder recovery evangelism, like where people push for recovery by any means necessary. Mm. And that's it. That's the only option there is in every treatment model is we have to get you to this idea of recovery, which is very numerical, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so there's that in place. Treatment is not accessible. And so there's nothing else for that individual that is stuck. And it's so normal to turn away people seeking medical support or seeking counseling services because they are too compromised. And then they go to the medical world and they're too psychologically compromised. So as it is, the root of having an eating disorder is I don't belong. And then you try to go help, Mm -hmm. go get help, and you still don't belong. And then you get into treatment. And if you're not getting better by their plan and their metrics, you still don't fit in. You don't belong. So it's like you repeatedly get exposed to there's just something inherently wrong with you. When the reality is that this system was not built with people like me and you in mind. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 not necessarily that we are inherently wrong. It's like, no, our bodies are so freaking amazing that our bodies had to do what they had to do to physically and emotionally survive. And unfortunately and fortunately, that meant maybe developing some type of 
behavior and that causes both harm, but for one reason or the other, we've made it this far. So are we truly at wrong for surviving or are these systems what's wrong? Right. And so it's that reframing that does not exist within this treatment world and this recovery culture that it, it just doesn't allow for these gray shaded areas. And the truth is that the majority of us are in gray shaded areas. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to pull on a thread of what you were just saying about the failures of eating disorder treatment centers. One of the things that you talk about that I find really important to draw out is the role that professionalization of eating disorder treatment plays in making those treatments less effective. And I feel like NPP is intervening in that and providing something different. So could you speak to that a little bit? I've just been saying, whatever we know about eating disorders in the Western world, we got to throw it away and start over. And as I was saying earlier, if Western culture creates these types of disorders, why would Western linear ways be the way out? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. And so I'm, I'm really right now where I'm at with my work, because we're always we're always evolving as individuals. But what I would love to see is a demedicalized, deprofessionalized, mutual aid based, community based models. What if we built these treatment centers in a way so the point is for them to at one point stop existing because all the support models have been embedded within the community? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm pushing all the people that I'm working with right now in the professional eating disorder world, pushing people to radically re-envision. And let me tell you, when we do these types of exercises through the eating disorder harm reduction programs that I'm running right now, they have a hard time even doing that. Like it, they're scared. How dare we disalign with health insurance dependence? How dare we dream away from that? So sad. It's such a bad system. I mean, nobody, I've never heard anybody be like, oh, let's go to US for the healthcare. (laughs) Very few people. Like no one is satisfied. Very few people. uh, And it's usually for like surgeries and things like that. And yeah, yeah, right. But for eating disorder, I mean, I don't know. Right. We're just so used to mediocrity. <laughs> That's kind of not true. Yeah. And it's like, you just need to scratch it a little bit and sniff it and realize, oh no, this is not it. And it takes so much unprogramming to get to that point where you're just like, oh, this is shabby. Like, this is not good. Está parado en tres patas. Like, uh-uh, esto se va a caer. Like, esto no, no va a aguantar. And so, yeah, I'm in a point right now where it's like, how do we give ourselves permission to radically re-envision care? And we have so to. Because the reality is that the majority of us do not have access to health care. Right. The only reason why I ever made it to any form of treatment, even me being in this field, was through scholarships. That was it. Otherwise, my ass has always been outside the door. And as a child, the mental health medical world always let me down. Mm. I have so much trauma. 
it makes sense why people don't trust yeah and want some it's required we have to build our support networks as if these industries don't exist because that's the reality for a lot of us mm -hmm. things I wanted to touch on it's something you talk about a lot and I think it's one of the more valuable things that more people should be thinking about and that's about the relationship between white supremacy and eating disorders and we've kind of been touching on like the westernized medical system and its failures to help ameliorate the harms of eating disorders but there's also that connection at the core of eating disorders. And so just wanted to kind of draw that out a little bit more. So every concept that we have in our brain that is categorized as the standard is embedded in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. From bodies mm -hmm. to food, gender, even like professionalism. Mm -hmm. has been touched by colonialism, mm -hmm. white supremacy, Christianity, purity culture, anti-Blackness. And, you know, the depressing list continues, right? right. But all of them are connected to, to this white supremacy. And it's shocking these conversations are still not happening as they should in these treatment centers. Because both me and you know... Since we were little girls, if that's how we identify, right? That the standard was that of whiteness, of thinness. Yeah. And going back to that disconnect. And ultimately, eating disorders happen for different reasons. But it is a response to a patriarchal society. It is a way to escape. It is a way to become invisible to shrink, rage, internalize hatred. I mean, it's just, it, it has so many functions and that is why it's so difficult to stop because that's how we've emotionally um, survived. But just think of the concept of wellness. What comes to mind is a thin body, an able body, a cis body. And a white body. And a white body. And so how are we going to get to a better place if we cannot even imagine ourselves aligned to a concept of health mm -hmm. that is truly normal <laughs> away, away and away from white supremacy? Like, how are we going to get there? We can't even envision it. So we're always pursuing this idea of where we need to be, how we need to look. Of course, we're going to engage in self-harm to get to that place or punish ourselves because we cannot get to that place. Right. Even looking at our food system, I always say disorder leads to disorder. Just look at how we treat mm -hmm. the farm workers. Look at how we treat people in the food industry, the majority of the food industry, which feeds the working class people. You can't even get the people in the selling tacos in the corner, not getting bullied by police. Right. Especially what's happening here in Southern California mm -hmm. with food street vendors. So on top of witnessing the environmental violence that's happening 
at the end of the day, we we are part of the ecosystem. As much as Western linear thinking wants us to believe that we're at the top, indigenous thought teaches us otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like there is no separation. We we are part of this. We don't dominate it. We yeah, have learned we're like to a be part extracted. of the ecosystem. Right. And but there's this idea we're the top of the chain. No, we are nature's uh, yes. <laughs> you know, like you can swear. You know, <laughs> yes, we are nature's bottom, like <laughs> okay. <laughs> and of course, witnessing all this disconnect. And and here's the part that gets to me. When we think about eating disorder healing and treatment in Western ways, it's inside a room. Mm-hmm. It's behind four walls. And I'm just like, we're part of nature and we are so detached from it. Like, are you, how are we going to heal si no sabemos que somos de la tierra? We don't even touch soil. We don't get by the... Like we're not in tune. And one of the features of historical trauma is disconnection from the natural world. Mm. And let me tell you, when I'm most with my phone working, disconnected, just work like a machine is when I get sicker. Mm. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. And these treatment centers, some of them, if you don't progress or if you don't abide by the rules, they cut out your time to be outside. You have to stay indoors. That's what I'm talking about. Like this medical system being more of a policing and surveillance system, you know, something that's replicating the prison system and how it operates. It's carceral. Right. More so than focusing on people being well. And I feel like that's a human right violation. Yeah. You can't restrict people's outside time. No, there are the actually lawsuits for everybody. About that. Yeah, right. Should be. How dare you try to remove that from somebody who's already nutritionally compromised, right? And needs vitamin D. Like, how? How does like, it's so ass backwards? I can't. Sometimes I feel like I'm losing myself, my my sanity with this field because it's just so backwards, and then it's expected out of me. To just be like, okay, what we have is great. It's amazing. It's evidence-based. Oh my God. It's CBT, DBT. I don't even know any more of these LTs. But like, it's just like, what? Why? How are we not mad? How are there no punching bags in these treatment centers? Is my first question. Before anything else. If you leave with anything... Is that we need punching bags in these <laughs> centers? I'm so pissed, and this that's a good thing because eating disorders serve as anesthesia, right? They're numbing; it's a numbing factor, and so there's work. There's so much work to do with anger that I feel could be so helpful, but everybody runs away because how dare a woman be angry? Right. We need to be angry. This this shit's fucked up. But anyways, that's a whole nother conversation before I get to another rant. <laughs> well, I did want to invite this rant because I wanted to ask about Christian patriarchy and eating disorders because like you're saying, you know, women should be mad and something that you've helped illuminate too, apart from, or sort of as a component of 
the role that white supremacy plays in eating disorders, also Christian patriarchy plays a very central role too. And so just wanted to have you reflect on that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I talked about in this religious trauma series that I did with my my dear friend Ilda Franco is how anti-Blackness, Christianity, and white supremacy, anti-fatness, and diet culture, they're systems that support each other and overlap. Mm, mm-hmm. There's really, at, yeah. at its foundation, there's not much of a distinction. Yeah, it's all about bodily control. Exactly. Of correct embodiment, mm-hmm. as if we are not already correct when we're born. Right. We're, you know, this idea, this body mastery, continuously on this pathway of improving myself, the gym culture, the, and I get it, like, not all of that is bad. I'm, I'm not saying that, but there's this idea of mastery, which is mm-hmm. all embedded in colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yes. And think about it colonialism. One of the big reasons why Western colonialism takes place and has taken place is to spread Christianity. Yeah. Think about it. Christianity and policing go hand in hand. Right. Yes. Because God is always watching. Yeah. And that was, you know, Christianity was used to justify so much colonialism, like across Latin America and the places of the U.S. that used to be part of Mexico and you know, Christianity and bodily control historically have gone hand in hand and continues to be a really toxic enmeshment. Right. They help reinforce each other. And um, there's so many ways to go about how they're interlinked. And it's just, it's, yeah, I, I ha- we have a whole series about it. And then what Christian patriarchy did to two-spirit people or people that express outside of this Western idea of gender, what it did to us, mm-hmm. the multi-generational impact of that. And that's not to say that before colonialism, things were perfect. There's never been right. anything as perfection. But the patriarchy, there's no way of, it feels like even, I was thinking about this the other day. I was driving and I was like, oh my God, I just went out and I experienced so much sexism in a place where I was supposed to be safe. Mm. You know, and it's just like, there's, it feels like there's no like running away from it at times. But when we look at Christian patriarchy, I was raised Jehovah's Witness, right? Mm-hmm. I'm daughter of immigrants. And if it was in the religion that was going to make me a good citizen for patriarchy it was going to be my culture a culture that's been impacted by colonialism yeah that has the influence of catholicism yeah so if it's not going to be christianity that's going to catch you it might be diet culture like the white supremacy it transforms and is it grabs us one way or the other but looking at my own experience of my indoctrination of being a jehovah's witness made me a very good candidate to be a dump site for patriarchy. Mm, like a participant in it. and Right. Yeah. And the whole, uh, many of us develop eating disorders as a way to become this ideal woman body, to yeah, have yeah. the woman body that you need to have in order to get married and reproduce. And like it's just so much goes unquestioned. We just take it. And I'm so thankful that, even as a kid, I always had 
a intuitive way of knowing that this mm-hmm. isn't right. I don't mm-hmm. know why I can't point it out, but mm-hmm. I've always had the drive for doing what's right in social, you know, social activism or whatever we want to call it these days. But I've always had that bug in me. I could never completely shut it down, but I could see how being raised Jehovah's Witness could have really kept me as an obedient follower to white supremacy and all of this stuff that we're talking about. I could have easily been in there and I mean, when it comes to religion, it's so complicated for some people, but that I'm just speaking on my own experience. No, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the connections that you draw because they are there. And for anyone that is a religious practitioner, what a faith believer, I mean, I think you need to contend with that history. I think it is important to think about. The last question that I've been asking all interviews this season is, what is something that is inspiring you lately? Oh my goodness. Okay. One is, and I'm telling you, I'm a mess, but <laughs> I'm telling I'm just gonna be honest. Pilates is giving me so much life. I love that for uh, you. Yes. <laughs> that's the best response, by the way. <laughs> um, yes, that's giving me so much. So much. Um, I will say it's a good workout for sure. Yeah. It will get you like your muscles constricting. It's it's definitely you use every muscle, which is mm-hmm. and coming. Mm-hmm. I have no background in body movement whatsoever. Like I I'm not athletic, n- nothing like that. But this whole experience with Pilates has been so helpful in, in being embodied and being present in my body. Yeah. And I, I see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's amazing. It's, I feel like I'm in this whole new world that I didn't even know. Like it could be part of my world. Mm-hmm. So that's been very helpful recently. Um, honestly, I'm just, I just love going to my local bar and having my Michelada, not talking about yes. work. Nobody knows that. me. Talk to <laughs> a few gentlemen, <laughs> you know, like that, that's, that's really what I look forward to. I look forward to being very goofy. Mm. I'm a payasa deep down inside. I love laughing. I am very negative, but I could really have a good time while mm. being negative and be very <laughs> funny. And when I meet other people who could connect to my goofiness and and just being silly, like I that's that's when I'm. I'm me. And when I could laugh loud and not be judged for it, like that's, that's what I look forward to and collecting vinyl. Um, that's one thing that I've been doing lately and more listening to more music and sixties and seventies is my, my eras. And, um, yeah. I love that. I love all of that for you. That's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gloria, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This was such a fruitful discussion and I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Thank you, Yvette. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. 
thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club-style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas! Bye.